This podcast is brought to you by Villanova University on iTunes U. Please visit us on itunes.villanova.edu. But uh, for those of you who don't know me, I'm uh, Dr. James Wilson. I'm an assistant professor in the humanities program here at Villanova. Um, but uh, I'm not really here in my capacity as a professor, but as a friend and admirer of uh, Dr. Mark Mitchell. Let me just say a few words about uh, in preface to Dr. Mitchell's lecture tonight. Um, in the great poem by W.H. Auden, Ori Nonaka. The poet writes of a twilight account encounter in which an Arcadian is confronted by a utopia. Politics, suggests the poem, is not constituted by a set of platforms and programs. Rather, these things are the expressions of something far more fundamental, which we might call a disposition, a way of seeing the world. It is the vision of an unprecedented and ideal future of a utopia that drives the radical. And it is the vision, the panoramic portrait one paints, of a venerable past that preoccupies the dreams of the Arcadian. This claim about imagination as the foundation of politics may seem implausible in our day. Those uh, we routinely dismiss as ideologues often seem driven precisely by a lack of vision. They are questers with a single object in view rather than with something more comprehensive. And we fear them because they would wreck all in the name of one ide fixe. We at least like to think that our political leaders are uh, pragmatists, a bit like moles with no eyes to see the world at all, but a good snout for working through this or that mound of dirt. And yet, an imaginary is no less present for going unperceived. And in, if this is the case, then a valuable task for us in the present, especially for young people, is to make visible the imaginative vision that grounds our politics, and in doing so, to enter into it more methodically. Our political life will only be strengthened if we learn to imagine possible and impossible worlds again with the Arcadians and Utopians of past, present, and future we will have recovered a way by which to test our means against our ends, against our duty. It's to this task of recovering politics as an outgrowth of what he called the moral imagination uh, that the writer Russell Kirk committed himself. He thought of political conservatism not as a partisan phalanx, but as a disposition, a way of being that might be most valuable even when a man just sits and thinks or merely sits. The Russell Kirk Society, who is presenting this talk tonight, has here at Villanova for two years now been inviting students to study Kirk's works and to reimagine their politics, not so much uh, so that it conforms to the policies of one of our major parties, but to reintegrate their political visions with their deeper moral, spiritual, and historical visions. I hope that uh, the society will grow in the years ahead. Thanks to the generosity of the Matthew J. Ryan Center for the Study of Free Institutions and Public Good, the Department of Humanities, the Honors Program, and above all, to the John Jay Institute 
the Kirk Society is pleased to present for you tonight this lecture by Mark Mitchell. Before I introduce Dr. Mitchell, I want to just say a word or two about the John Jay Institute. Based here in Philadelphia, the John Jay seeks to prepare principled leaders for faith-informed public service. In its own noble words, it is working to bring about a renaissance of the animating ideals that inspired America's founding. We are fortunate to have such a neighbor here in Philadelphia, and I hope this will not be the last time that the John Jay Institute and Villanova faculty and students convene in the same room. Those of you interested in finding out more about the John Jay Institute should, I suppose, approach this table after the lecture tonight. How fortunate we are, indeed, to convene on this occasion. For those of you who do not know him, Mark Mitchell is chair of the Department of Government at Patrick Henry College. He earned his doctorate at that unfortunate school, Georgetown, and has since authored two books, uh, Michael Plani, The Art of Knowing, and most recently, The Politics of Gratitude, Scale, Place, and Community in a Global Age. He has also co-edited a book of essays on the agrarian writer Wendell Berry. Dr. Mitchell is also founder of the web magazine Front Porch Republic, whose commitment to place, limits, and liberty to a restoration of human scale and local community to the center of our political imaginations has in these last few years earned national attention as one of the few promising political developments in an age more often characterized by partisan rancor and despondent individualism. All Villanova freshmen, including my students here, read Hobbes in their ACS course. There they see an early instance of a political imagination that places fear at the very root of human existence. The mainstream of American politics has seldom in these last years left the fertile soil of fear-mongering for higher grounds. But Dr. Mitchell's work proposes to us that another foundation is available, that of gratitude. I will leave it to him to suggest to you how a politics of gratitude might improve not only our arguments, but our dispositions, not only our policies, but our way of dreaming. My last task is to ask you to join me in welcoming Dr. Mark Mitchell. Good evening. Thank you, James, for that uh, introduction. It's a pleasure to be here in Villanova. Um, I've never been to this campus before, but I've watched the team play Fairmont, uh, and I hope that you all are got your practice filled out. And, uh, of Villanova going far this year. I, I am especially gratified to, to be speaking to a group that uh, takes their name and inspiration from Russell Kirk. And if you've read much Kirk, um, I think you will recognize uh, the Kirkian influence in some of the things that I'm going to talk about tonight. And we'll start with, with just acknowledging something that uh, I think all of us will agree with, and that is something is seriously wrong. Um, with American politics. One of the few things that Americans seem to agree on is that, well, Congress is an ineffectual body that's proficient mostly at pandering to special interests while glibly spending money borrowed against our grandchildren's future. The presidency, in its uh, respect, oscillates between Democrats and Republicans, but uh, nothing really seems to change. The near collapse of the banking industry in 2008 indicated that the problem is not simply limited to the public sector uh, and the subsequent government bailout of certain entities deemed too big to fail suggests that we have forgotten how to think and to act in terms of human scale 
a good term that's largely forgotten. The so-called culture wars have increased in rancor even as the lines have become more fixed and the warriors more intransient. Voices of decency, propriety, and wisdom are all too often drowned out by those who specialize in vitriol, who seem to take delight in demonizing their opponents. The political landscape is dominated by so-called liberals and conservatives who often seem both illiberal and downright hostile to conserving much of anything at all. Somewhere in the process, we've lost or abandoned any conception of the common good. Now, to adequately address these serious political and cultural and social challenges, I think we need to take a step back from politics and consider certain issues that are ultimately more fundamental. We've got to write some very basic ways, and as Aristotle reminds us, that uh, a small error at the beginning going to result in significant errors down the road. What I want to do in the next few minutes is to consider some important aspects of the human condition that will, I think, help to undergird a more adequate and satisfying account of our corporate life. First of all, we need to begin with a seemingly obvious fact, and that is that we are limited creatures. And our limits press in on us in a very a variety of levels. There are natural limits, moral limits, metaphysical limits. For instance, because we're embodied, human beings uh, inhabit a particular place, a particular space. Our interests, our concerns, and awareness extend outward from that particular place that we occupy. We cannot, in the truest sense, be cosmopolitans, for we cannot extend our physical selves, or even our mental or emotional selves, to inhabit, understand, or empathize with the entire world. If all politics is local, this is because all humans are local. That is to say, we are confined in space and limited in important ways by that confinement. We also find ourselves confined by time. Ultimately, we all live under the dark cloud of our mortality. Time is that mysterious and fleeting locus of human action. We can use our time to help others, to enjoy a sunset, to worship the divine. Or we can destroy life, ignore the beauty that appears as an unexpected gift, denounce God as a tyrant, or ignore him as a fable. Time limits us, but without it, human action is simply unintelligible. We are limited in other ways, of course. The Judeo-Christian tradition speaks of a fall from grace, which at the very least reminds us or represents a way of coming to grips with the fact that humans are imperfect. We're not omniscient, and our thoughts as well as our actions are subject to error. Part of what motivates human striving, I think, is an attempt to recover, if but in a dim way, the goodness, the stability, and health that exists only in our collective memory. To recognize our imperfectibility is crucial. To grasp our contingency is no less necessary. That we are contingent means that we're not self-sufficient. At its most rudimentary, we're not responsible for our own existence. We do not plan our own entrance into this world, and we don't, short of 
suicide, control our exit. We are also contingent insofar as we depend on others. From the moment of our birth, we depend on our parents to feed and clothe us. Without the care of others, we would soon perish. After childhood, we still need others for companionship, economic relationship, and a multitude of other cooperative endeavors. Only God is non-contingent. Yet with all of that, I think we chafe against limits. This has always been a human trait. But it has become especially acute in the modern world, where materialism has undermined any conception that nature itself may provide moral norms. Where secularism has eroded the notion of divinely ordained limits, and the new science has equipped humans to transcend, or at least imagine transcending limits that were once believed to be fixed. Now, once we acknowledge the various ways we are limited, there are, I think, obvious implications. The first is the role that gratitude should play in our lives. But at the outset, we need to acknowledge, I think, that we tend to be a rather ungrateful lot. In 1930, the Spanish philosopher Ortega José Gasset, has anybody read The Revolt of the Masses? The book you all have touched on. He said this in that book. He said that modern people are characterized by their radical ingratitude. It's kind of a curious thing to say, isn't it? But he thought that this was a profoundly uh, indicative of the modern mind. Radical ingratitude. I think he was on this. Now consider what gratitude means. Gratitude is a way of inhabiting the world. In the first instance, I think gratitude is a disposition that reminds us simply that we are not alone. We are not solitary creatures, some kind of Lockean ideal situation, uh, owing nothing to no one. Rather, gratitude points to our fundamental and essential dependence. It depends on our contingency. It, depends, it, it, it points to our need. It is a fitting attitude in the face of our creatureliness. When our thoughts are characterized by gratitude, they are outward looking. Gratitude breaks us out of a, the cocoon of self-satisfaction and self-concern that is a constant temptation and impels us to think of ways that our lives are fundamentally related to others. In short, gratitude highlights our dependence, not our independence. And to the extent that all people, all of us, have been on the receiving end of beneficence, all of us have a duty to be grateful. A duty. And in, 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 in the history of philosophy, gratitude has been treated in various ways. Some have expressed it in terms of a moral duty. Uh, others have expressed it in terms of a virtue, a virtue of character. In either instance, ingratitude is a moral fault, a moral problem. You see, Ortega's claim that, that our society, that our, our culture is fundamentally ingrateful, he ungrateful, he's suggesting, is, 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 a, is a moral problem. Now, who or what are the ideas or, or proper objects of our gratitude? To whom 
do we owe gratitude? Well, obviously, I suppose God comes to mind. While reflecting on the physical goodness of the natural world, Cicero once remarked that, quote, in truth, we can hardly reckon him a man whom neither the regular courses of the stars, nor the alterations of day and night, nor the temperatures of the seasons, nor the productions that nature displays for his use, do not urge to gratitude toward heaven. St. Paul, I recall, exhorts his fellow Christians to, in everything, give thanks. Now it's hard to imagine how we could give thanks in everything, unless the object of that thanks is ultimately God. If God is the author of life, the source of all goodness, then surely continual thanks are in order simply because we're alive, because we're breathing. Another obvious uh, object of gratitude is our parents. While God is the ultimate giver of life, in a more proximate sense, we do owe our existence to them. And assuming our parents raised us, we owe them a debt of gratitude for providing us food, shelter, educating us to know right from wrong, we have to show respect and deference to our parents. And to fail in this matter is an offense against the natural order of things. The Latin word pietas, from which we get our word piety, has a variety of meanings, including a sense of duty, devotion, kindness, tenderness, and loyalty to the gods and to one's country. When a son acts dutifully towards his father, he is demonstrating pietas. Right? Gratitude is tied up with this duty. For if the outward acts are performed without the inward disposition of love and gratitude, the act is not really one characterized by pietas. Pietas proper, is proper actions born of proper motivation. In the classical world, as in some contexts today, pietas for one's father was inextricably tied to pietas towards the gods. For knowledge and devotion to the gods is acquired directly from one's father. We honor the gods because we honor our father, and he honors them. Thus we can see a, a generational transmission of pietas that extends from father to son and ultimately. Now, gratitude to one's father opens the door of the imagination to see that our existence is not merely the result of one father. We are part of a long line of fathers and mothers who have passed down to us not only the physical traits and, and, uh, and, and, and characteristics we exhibit, but practices and stories, ways of living and ways of dying. In short, they have given us the culture we inhabit, which is to say they have given us a world that is specifically human. As soon as we see this, we can realize that our debt is truly beyond comprehension, let alone being repayment. We bear the burden of those who have gone before. We owe a debt of gratitude that can simply never be adequately repaid. Nevertheless, we seek to preserve that which has been entrusted to us, carrying that gift for a time. And if we raise our sons and daughters well, if they in turn exhibit this virtue of pietas, 
they have seen us bear our burden faithfully and with care, they may assume the burden of gratitude when our time is packed. In this way, our responsible actions set an example. Our responsible actions, born ultimately of gratitude, will give birth to similar actions in our sons and daughters as they express their gratitude to us by assuming the burden of their inheritance and carrying it for the time allotted to them. In this way, and in no other, is culture transmitted. Now, there are many who suggest that we owe gratitude to the natural world. But to be sure, without soil, we would die. Without clean air and clean water, our health is impossible to maintain. The simple beauty of a sunrise or a bird's song testifies to those unbought graces of which Burke writes. Living in harmony with the natural world implies a life characterized by responsible action. In the same way that the past is a burden handed down to us by our fathers, so too is care for the natural world, something that requires our thoughtful attention and sustained effort. If we care well for the natural world, our descendants, if they are wise, will be grateful to us. The woe to our memories if we abuse that which has been entrusted to our care. That in an age of plenty, we can take our material bounty for granted is, I think, an obvious hazard. But equally, in an age where we are increasingly insulated from the natural world, we can become blind to the gifts that are simply all around us. When we come to think of our milk, our meat, and our vegetables as products of the grocery store, we've lost sight of reality. We've lost sight of the simple fact that we are sustained physically by a sunlit earth, by the animal, by the grass, by the soil, all of which are nourished by the sun. This is no small oversight. For we take, if we take the time to observe the natural world around us, we come to see one aspect of our debt, one element of our gratitude. Wendell Berry writes of the giftedness of the natural world when he notes that, quote, outdoors we are confronted everywhere with wonders. We see that the miraculous is not extraordinary, but the common mode of existence. It is our daily bread. Of course, Chesterton noted that it was Christ's first miracle of changing water into wine, but isn't it equally miraculous that through natural processes, water is changed to grape juice? Something remarkable happens right before us. Gratitude manifests itself in care and responsible action, while ingratitude toward the natural world leads, perhaps invariably, to carelessness and exploitation. Clearly, we ought to recognize that apart from the natural world, we cannot survive, much less flourish. It's a good word, flourish. Human flourishing. Where do you use the concept that you employ? It's one we need to give serious thought to. What does it mean for human beings to flourish? While civilization and the natural world can be conceptualized, conceptualized separately, they are, of course, intimately connected. Civilization simply cannot exist in a disembodied state separate from a physical place. It can exist online. 
that is towns, schools, churches, and markets, all must be situated some place. And if these good things are to thrive, the places they inhabit must be healthy. The riches of civilization, so fragile and delicately wrought, cannot be fully realized or enjoyed in a wasteland. There is a relationship between culture and the natural world that must never be ignored. Edmund Burke recognized the essential and perhaps obvious connection between conservatism and conserving. Look at that. A connection between conservatism and conserving? It seems obvious, right? Today the word is used without much thought of conserving. But Burke said this, quote, I do not like to see anything destroyed, any void produced in society, any ruin on the face Gratitude is ultimately born of humility. For it acknowledges the giftedness of the creation and the benevolence of the Creator. This recognition gives birth to acts marked by attention and responsibility. Ingratitude, on the other hand, is marked by hubris, which denies the gift. And this always leads to inattention, irresponsibility, and abuse. Now, so far we've discussed the notion of creatureliness and the disposition of gratitude. And a third concept, I think, is a practical outgrowth of the other two, and that's the idea of human scale. Now we've seen that both the denial of our creatureliness and ingratitude find their roots in a kind of hubris, the pride that fails to acknowledge reality as it is. One of the practical outworkings of this hubris is the loss of an appropriate sense of scale. I think we have in our day come in many respects to adore the massive, to aspire to the giants, to favor the supersized. This represents ultimately an unnatural view of reality, flawed view, and the practical results are striking, obvious and perhaps most clearly just big. Today we live in an atmosphere charged with giantism, for that reason, we need to consider with care the implications of that disposition. We need to give serious thought to the ways our culture has become simply intoxicated with the big, and we need to explore the reasons that this has come to pass. Now, in the middle of the 20th century, the Swiss economist Wilhelm Rupke wrote of the cults of the colossal. Good term. Has anybody read Rupke? Is that someone you all are familiar with? Good. If there is one economists who conservatives should know and read, read Rupke. Because Rupke is self-consciously aware that you cannot do economics without laying a foundation and a prior background context that's ultimately pre-economic. A moral, and ultimately for Rupke, a religious context is essential. He says, I start my reflections on economics with the assumption, with the belief, that man is created in God's image. And, and he thinks that if you start with a false anthropology, a false understanding of human nature, you're going to get everything mixed up. That's right. That economic, economic thought is essential, but it's not autonomous. It must be couched within a larger vision of human flourishing, of human nature, of human good. 
Well, he wrote of what he called Cult of the Colossal, a nice little phrase. And he thought that as the 20th century wore on, the predilection for the colossal would fade, unable to bear its own weight. Sadly, I think it was wrong on that one, uh, at least so far. In some ways, the momentum has even increased. Nevertheless, his call for return to human scale institutions, I think, is as apt as ever. Well, why exactly is human scale important? Why should we talk about it? Well, the ancient Greek philosopher Protagoras once remarked, famously, that man is the measure of all things. Now, he no doubt overstated his case. Um, but he does get, I think, an important truth. Much of what humans do must be tied to the measurement of the human being. If that connection is broken, human artifacts, human institutions become unnatural monstrosities that are simply ill-equipped to serve well the purpose for which they were created, which must have something to do with human flourishing. Take, for example, a simple example, just a chair you're sitting on. Carpenters cannot build good chairs without first considering the human form and size. If they paid only attention to form and not size, they could construct a chair 20 feet high. Fits human form, but not scale, right? Or maybe three inches tall. It would have the form of a chair, but would it be really a chair that you would use? This is an interesting piece of artwork. Big, huge chair or little miniature thing I could sit on the shelf. It wouldn't be a chair in the fullest sense. The form would suit, but the size would not. If, however, they considered only the, 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 human, the size of, of a human being without the form, there's every chance that this chair would be simply unsittable, or at least terribly uncomfortable. Obviously, carpenters or manufacturers must attend to the needs of human beings before they commence to building a chair. Only then will they, the products have a chance of being good chairs, that is, one suitable to human needs. The same principle applies to the construction of buildings, for instance. While the varieties are endless, there are certain principles that must be followed when, for instance, building a home. Doors must be within a certain range of size and manageability. Thirty-foot-tall doors that weigh hundreds and hundreds of pounds are practical, hard to open, harder to shut. So you're going you're to hurt the dog when he gets trapped, right? The, the poodle is going to yelp when he gets uh, caught in that door. Steps cannot be too high, for instance, lest they act as barriers. A 12-inch step works. What about a 36-inch step? Suddenly, the, the purpose of the chair is rendered moot. It it's no longer uh, facilitates accessibility. It serves as a barrier. Vertical windows dignify the human form, whereas horizontal slits at waist level make seeing out well difficult. Who wants to stoop to look out? And from the perspective of the street, think of what that does. It, it cuts off the human form, cuts legs and heads off. All you see is torsos. Something is undignified, not suited to the human form, when windows are not thought of and constructed in terms of human scale. The same kinds of arguments apply to streets, to cities, schools, farms, technologies, and businesses. The principle of human scale applies to to economics as well. A political or economic structure that pays no heed to the natural requirements of the human being, that is, to human flourishing, will invariably be in tension with the humans it is intended to serve. 
E.F. Schumacher wrote a little book called Small, it's beautiful. Anybody read it? It's not that small of a book. Um, I commend it to you. You should read it. The subtitle is, is rather charming. It's this, Economics as if people mattered. The purpose of an economy, for Schumacher, is not to grow. It's not to be as big as possible. The purpose of an economy, and the purpose of a political system, for that matter, is to facilitate human flourishing. That is, the economy, like the Sabbath, is made for man, not vice versa. But this claim about human flourishing requires that we ask fundamental questions about human beings. Fundamental questions that ultimately can't be answered in a purely economic idiom. That is, what are we? What does it mean to flourish as a human being individually? What does it mean to flourish corporately? Those are deep questions. Philosophical questions. Questions that may even push us into the realm of metaphysics. If we fail, however, to ask and answer these questions, we will fail to get our economics right. We'll fail to get our politics right. If we fail to think correctly about education, about architecture, cuisine, religion, in short, we will fail to adequately address the essentially human questions, and therefore these ancillary aspects of the human condition will be fundamentally marred. Why are we so attracted, then, to this notion of giantism? There are a variety of reasons, I think, but we can begin with the rise of secularism. For this, or with this, we come to forget our creatureliness. We come to neglect the, neglect the debt of gratitude we owe to God. When we forget, or simply conveniently ignore, that we are contingent creatures, we inadvertently create an enormous metaphysical void. In ages of belief, God served as a cosmic ordering principle, if you will. His presence oriented the various particulars of reality into a coherent whole. His existence made possible the so-called unity and diversity witnessed in, for example, medieval philosophy. With the rise of secularism, this ordering principle was lost. The manifold particulars came unmoored from the orienting fact of God's existence. Without the unity that God's existence provided, particulars lost their orientation to the whole. Only kind of radical multiplicity remained. This obviously brings to mind uh, Richard Weaver's critique of the modern problem. You all read Ideas Have Consequences? That's what we to look at. It suggests that this is precisely the problem, that a loss of the idea of universal has has has, uh, has rendered all uh, particulars radically separate, individualized essences without any kind of unifying element. And you can see what that means in terms of the implications for human nature itself. You are merely an individual. There is no such thing as human nature that may limit us even as it directs us toward ends that are proper to human beings. You are ultimately the product only of choices you make. And therefore, you're radically free, unconstrained, unconditioned individual. 
you saw this as a, as a fundamental problem with our understanding of society and of, of human beings. No one understood this kind of radical disjointedness better than Nietzsche. While declaring the death of God, gleefully, yes, but also reflectively, he understood what he was declaring. He understood the implications. He mused in these words, quote, who gave us the sponge to wipe away the entire horizon? Think about that. What does the horizon do? Think of navigation. It is the necessary element by which one can direct course. In ages prior to the GPS, the sextant would have to fix itself on the horizon and on a fixed star. And without the horizon, there is no orientation. Who gave us the sponge to wipe away the horizon, Nietzsche asked, in the wake of the death of God? What were we doing when we unchained this earth from its sun? The sun, the fixed star, unchained now. And he continues, whither is it moving now, that is the earth? Whither are we moving? Away from all suns? Are we not plunging continually backward, sideward, forward, in all directions? Is there still any up or down? Are we not straying as through an infinite nothing? Not exactly a triumphant declaration. He understood that there were some serious consequences. A kind of glib atheism is not what Nietzsche is about. God's existence, and Nietzsche understood this, provided a sort of metaphysical ordering principle by which the individual's lives and indeed entire societies could be arranged. With the demise of God, with the declaration that God is dead, that ordering principle was removed. The world was cut loose and threatened to fly into pieces. Nietzsche recognized the mind-boggling implication. People would come slowly to grasp, he said, quote, what this event really means. How much must collapse now that this faith has been undermined because it was built upon this faith in God, propped up by it, grown into it, for example, one of the things that must be sacrificed, he said, was our whole European morality. It's impossible, Nietzsche said, to retain so-called traditional morality in the wake of the death of God. And those halfway houses, the utilitarians, he called them blockheads, and the Kantians, he had no respect for them, are playing games to try to maintain some semblance of a moral order that's rooted and looks similar to an older order to do that in the wake of the death of God is simply Nietzsche understood the implication when the horizon is wiped away Nietzsche thought in an optimistic moment a new and limitless venue presents itself but he only believed that a kind, the kind of courageous a rare, courageous, free spirit could handle such a startling new reality. The rest condemned to be last men. Flea beetles hopping around, seeking to extend their lives of peace, pleasure, and an easy life with a little bit of morphine at the end. If humans are, in fact, creatures created by God, then the scale proper to humans is one that acknowledges human dependence on God. It recognizes human limitations. It acknowledges human fallibility, contingency, and need. When humans acknowledge fundamental limits, we are better positioned to see the world correctly. 
When we recognize our dependencies, we are ironically better equipped to live well. We acknowledge limitations and thereby are capable of living better. When we deny or ignore these limits, we naturally attempt to demonstrate our adequacies. We naturally seek a venue within which we can truly realize our autonomy that we claim so gleefully as our, as our right. Ultimately, we naturally seek to swallow the world, to dominate the world, only to find ourselves choking on reality. While we are accustomed, I think, by virtue of a culture that fairly worships bigness, to think in terms of quantity, we give precious little thought to propriety of scale. Our natural inclination is to think that big is probably better. But this is not a truth necessarily rooted in reality. Instead, it's a predilection exacerbated by certain dispositions that emerge in the modern world. If we are unable, or if we are to understand these dispositions, we must learn to see the world differently. We must consciously train ourselves to think in terms of appropriate scale. It's not a question we often ask. As soon as we begin asking questions of this sort, we'll discover a world of possibilities opening up. We'll be able to ask whether or not the biggest version of something is necessarily the best version. We'll begin to ask questions relating to the purpose for which things exist. Most would readily acknowledge, I think, that the purpose of a thing is not simply to be the biggest. The purpose of a chair is not to be the biggest chair. Rather, its purpose is to provide comfortable seating for a human being. The purpose of a school is not to be the biggest. Rather, its purpose is to accomplish, in the best fashion possible, the education of students. The purpose of an economy, the purpose of a nation, is not to be the biggest, but to provide the best conditions within which human beings The same principle applies to a hamburger, a shopping mall, a church. These questions of scale apply to all areas of life. And if we are to deal adequately with the problems in political or economic spheres, problems that we are facing in an acute way today, we cannot neglect questions of scale. If we are to deal wisely with environmental challenges, we must think about matters of scale. So too, when we engage questions about education, agriculture, or architecture, and all of these will fail to address central issues if we ignore this matter of scale. Now, a denial of our creatureliness leads to a denial of the various ways we are indebted and gives rise to what we could call the autonomous individual. Autonomous individuals are marked by ingratitude, for their faces are turned unstintingly toward the blinding light of progress, and they cannot recognize either limits or debts limits or debts that, that, are, that are grown up and passed on, the wisdom of them passed on from prior generations. Such people live on borrowed capital just as a nature, nation, blinded by consumption, lives on money borrowed from future generations. The ungrateful person, the ungrateful society for that matter, is characterized by hubris, which seeks to dominate reality by a sheer act of will. But such a, a power necessarily entails expansion, as the uncertainties of reality press in from every side. The ungrateful society or the ungrateful person cannot get the question of scale right because the human question is so badly answered. In contrast, the grateful person and the grateful society recognizes dependencies on every level. 
Such a person is characterized by humility, which gives birth not to the urge to dominate, but the urge to preserve that which has been passed down, that which has been tended and cultivated, that which has been, has and will produce good fruit. In short, grateful people are stewards. We often think of stewardship in terms of the natural world. I'm suggesting that we expand our notion of stewardship to include our institutions, our culture, all that we have inherited from the past. They understand, that is, stewards understand, that they're part of a chain, of a succession of responsibility. They grasp that their stewardship is not solitary, but bound to a long line of stewards, stretching back in time. Indeed, grateful people understand themselves as members of a community of stewards. And among this membership are the living, the dead, and the yet to be born. You hear Burke there? Such people can rest in the mystery of existence, the goodness of community, and the propriety of a scale suited to human being. Now, the notion of home, I think, naturally emerges from the three concepts we've thus far touched on. When we acknowledge our creatureliness, we acknowledge the fact that we are embodied. We occupy space. We live and breathe and have our being in the context of a particular place in time. We can express gratitude for the places we inhabit, for they provide the raw material upon which our lives are written. Each place has a unique history embodied in the land, the people, the human artifacts, the stories. Without a connection to these, individuals are nomads, strangers in a strange land, with no hope of becoming native to some place. To be native requires a scale suited to the extent of our capacity. The scale cannot exceed the limits of our knowledge, or perhaps even the limits of our love. For knowledge, much less our love, cannot extend indefinitely. Therefore, a place, when it is a home, is naturally of a scale suited to the limits of our creatureliness and the capacity of our gratitude. Now, with all that, I think the, con the concept of home is elusive, perhaps no more so than today. In her book, The Need for Roots, the French writer Simone Weil, you all read Simone Weil? I know Mark Shipman. You all know Mark Shipman? Yeah, good. Uh, she wrote this, quote, to be rooted is perhaps the most important and least recognized need of the human soul. It is the, one of the hardest, it is the hardest to define. A human being has roots by virtue of his real, active, and natural participation in the life of a community which preserves in living shape certain particular treasures of the past and certain particular expectations for the future. Now, if this is the case, then a society like ours, characterized in large part by our mobility, or at least potential for mobility, is a society that will be ill-equipped to provide one of the central According to Veit, modern rootlessness is not merely geographic or even cultural, but it's spiritual as well. Writing in the mid-20th century France, but sounding as if she could be speaking to us today, she describes, quote, a culture very strongly directed towards and influenced by technical science very strongly tinged with pragmatism, extremely broken up by specialization, entirely deprived both of contact with this world and at the same time any window opening to the world beyond. This suggests that humans 
have a need for physical or geographical roots in a particular place, embodying particular traditions, habits, and practices. But equally, if Simone Weil is correct, humans require roots in a transcendent world, a world of spirit, a world of moral truth. In short, the uprootedness of many today is both spiritual as well as geographic. Today we live in a world where mobility is the coin of the realm, and the idea of being settled in one place appears terrifying to some and simply impossible to others. Commitment to a particular place is a significant challenge in a modern world, and there are a variety of factors contributing to this restlessness. Well, there are some. The very way that we conceived of the world changed in the wake of the Enlightenment and the secular impulse that accompanied it. Think of the medieval mind. It was shaped by a particular understanding of reality. All creation was connected in a great chain of being that extended from the highest creatures, the angels created, down to the lowest, most significant atom. Humans created as the psalmist were created as, as the psalmist said, a little lower than the angels, and had a distinct place in the order of creation. All things were arranged in a hierarchical fashion with the infinite and eternal God presiding over all. This vertical chain unified all of reality under the authority of God. It provided a kind of meaning, conceptual orientation for all things. Humans belong to this order of creation, and because they are the highest of the embodied creatures, they are also, according to this vision of reality, tasked with ruling the rest of the physical creation. Thus, humans had a clear place in the created order, and a clear responsibility that accompanied their privileged position. Now with the collapse of the medieval world, this great chain of being slowly crumbled as well. This geocentric cosmology that incidentally gives us Dante's Divine Comedy. Can you imagine Dante writing his Divine Comedy in a Copernican world? It doesn't work, right? Um, it, it, it collapsed. This, this, this geocentric cosmology collapsed uh, in the wake of Copernicus. With the Earth no longer at the center of reality, it became, at least the physical center of reality, it became much more difficult to assert that humans were the center of anything at all. This invention of the telescope brought into view a stunning array of stars and galaxies that overpowered the imagination with the vast extent of space. Earth, it seemed, was merely an insignificant planet orbiting an insignificant star on the fringes of an infinite or maybe not space. The elegant hierarchical order represented by the great chain of being was replaced by a growing skepticism about the significance of human existence itself. Maybe it's all absurd. The links of this chain were sundered. The order of reality was lost. No longer did all parts of creation have their neatly assigned places in the created order. In the process, humans lost sight of their clearly delineated privilege as well as their responsibility. The longing for a place, understandably, remained intact, for the comfort accorded by the great chain of being was, I think, enormous. Yet, the modern person bereft of that order, that view of the world, finds himself seeking the kind of place that the earlier vision of the world provided. Modern restlessness is, at least in part, the product of a world in which the chain joining all things has been severed, and each person is striving to find his own place without the structure of a hierarchically ordered creation. That is an imaginative structure to Skepticism about transcendent reality leads, I think invariably, to philosophical materialism. 
That's the tendency of these. And philosophical materialism in our age has opened the door to a more general kind of materialism, namely consumerism. After all, if we're merely pleasure-seeking creatures who cease to exist with the demise of our physical bodies, then our chief concern will be the enhancement of our personal pleasure. And to be sure, personal pleasure is greatly enhanced, if only temporarily, by the things that money can secure, by the pleasures they can produce. When members of a society make material gain their central concern, that society will embrace an ethic of mobility, for each person will be quite willing to relocate in the pursuit of effort. Thus we see communities of transient individuals, each committed primarily to the acquisition of material gain and the betterment of their immediate family members. Homes tend to become merely launching places for economic and hedonistic endeavors, and individuals tend to lose any abiding concern for the long-term future of their places, of their communities. In such a setting, any notion of community membership, which evokes ideas of commitment and loving concern over a lifetime, is replaced by a much narrower concern for personal affluence, individual pleasure. But skepticism not only undermines a commitment to geographic place, it eliminates any idea of a heavenly home as well, which can serve to moderate and even re redirect the sort of consumeristic passion engendered by our contemporary society. Thus it seems that the same set of beliefs that help to create geographic homelessness also tends to create a spiritual homelessness as well. Too often, too many modern people find themselves without a place either in this world or in the next. Now, a healthy local community comprises particular people inhabiting a particular place, sharing local customs, activities, and stories. In short, community members participate in a complex web of relations that are flavored by the particular history, geography, culture of that place. When we describe a local community in those terms, it becomes clear how a massive national community is simply impossible. Even more fanciful is the idea of a world community. To be sure, we can share a common we share a common nature with other human beings and common needs and desires, and we can even empathize perhaps with and render aid to humans from radically different communities. But the cosmopolitan ideal that one can be, quote, a citizen of the world is only imaginable if we strip down the rich notion of community to something like the brotherhood of man. The idea of universal brotherhood, I think, is appealing. And insofar as it goes, it's true, but abstract brotherhood is not the same as living in a local community with men and women of flesh and blood. Local communities include, along with pleasant images of hominess, also the rude woman at the market, the town drunk, and the idiosyncratic recluse who lives down at the end of the street. It's not perfect, but it's embodied. Oddly enough, I think it's easier to love the world than to love your neighbor. Think about that. Christ reduces the commandments, the law, to two, love God, love your neighbor. And we, in our self-satisfaction, we, oh, we cannot do that. We can love the world instead of our neighbor. It's harder to love your neighbor. Ultimately, when love for a particular place and the people inhabiting that place is lost, community is lost as well. Centralization shifts the focus of our love away from the local and towards the abstract and the universal. In the process, love itself becomes an abstraction. Love 
of the world is an abstraction. The loss of commitment to a particular place results in the restless mobility that characterizes so much of American life. And even when particular individuals stay put in one place, the very possibility of easy mobility makes it possible for people to inhabit the world of the potential future rather than the concrete presence. I need to keep my options open means in practice, refraining from committing to any particular place. But isn't that what we're encouraged to do? Keep your options open. Don't commit. That limits your options. And we chafe against limits. But maybe that it's only in the wake of commitment that the best things in life are ultimately real. Potential communities, they're ultimately far more desirable than actual ones. We can always imagine a place better than our present one. Holding out for a perfect situation is in some ways easier than getting involved in the conflicts and irritants that inevitably exist in reality. But although the temptation to stay at arm's length, to inhabit a place with ironic detachment, isn't that what we're trained to do, is alluring. The implications for a robust and healthy local community are simply wrong. Indeed, if a critical mass of such people occupy a certain place. They are merely a collection of individuals rather than a community. They are mere residents and they cannot be stewards. When local communities are lost, so too are the stories, customs, practices, and traditions that constitute a community. These are the very things that provide context and meaning to our social lives. They provide us with guidelines for acting together. They are the source of manners and expectations that make life in community possible. With the loss of common practices, common stories, common traditions, we lose the cues that help us navigate a particular world. Ultimately, in a world where commitment is feared and deracination is seen as a virtue, living contentedly in one place is simply a counter-cultural act. It is an act born of gratitude for it recognizes the subtle and simple gifts native to a place, many of which are visible only to those who love the place and are committed to its future. Grateful creatures living together through time will necessarily be mindful, perhaps only intuitively, of the kind of scale that is necessary to both enjoy the gifts inherent in place and care for those gifts in a way that preserves them. Contentment is the offspring of humility. For humility seeks not to dominate or exploit, but to steward good things well. The practical result is lives constituted by propriety, in which the human world of artifacts and relationships complements the geography, the flora and fauna of the natural world. Lives constituted by propriety, that's a good word, a word we should recapture. A life constituted by propriety, they are lives lived well in the context of a particular place. Lives in which harmony, not dissonance, is evident in the wisdom and affection that characterize the actions of individuals. The novelist and essayist Wallace Stegner. Anybody read Stegner? Yes? He's someone you should read. Um, Sure, this is written right, but but someone you, you ought to know. He wrote extensively about the American West and the various kinds of men and women who settled it. He described two distinct personality types. He called them the boomers 
and the stickers. Boomers are always on the lookout for a fast buck, for the next big thing, the next gold rush, the next oil strike. They sit loosely in the saddle, always ready to light out for the, the next big thing, the land rush, promises of wealth, excitement, and success. Boomers are transients who never commit to a place, for they are convinced that there is always some other place that is superior, one that will finally satisfy the restless longing that constantly agitates their minds. In a real sense, a boomer can be a boomer even if he or she never musters the gumption to leave. For failing to commit to a place and see oneself as part of the ongoing story of a place characterizes the mind of a boomer. Stickers, in contrast, and as you might guess, stick. To be sure, the American West, and America as a whole for that matter, was settled by people who left their homes and went out seeking a new place. Some were motivated by desire for land, some sought religious freedom, some were on the run from the law. Nevertheless, from among this variegated band, many chose to settle down, build homes, raise kids and crops, start businesses, and plan for the future. In imagining themselves in their places for the long haul, they learned to think differently than boomers. Rather than attempt to extract quick profits, stickers think of passing on a legacy of care to their children, to their grandchildren. According to Stegner, a recognizable indigenous culture emerged in the West, and this was, quote, the product not of boomers, but of stickers. Not of those who pillage and run, but those who settle and love the life they have made and the place they have made it in. Now, I think it's true that many of us have left our homes. Some of us never really had one. For most, returning home may not be viable or even a desirable option. Nevertheless, we can choose to be stickers. We can commit to our homes. And in the process, we may be surprised to find hidden springs available only in the wake of commitment that nourish us in that place. Commitment then takes the form of membership, and membership in turn becomes joint ownership in a living tradition, a vibrant tradition embodied in a community that transcends any one person, even as all its members, members living and dead, sustain it by their fidelity and loving care. Thank you for your attention. I'd be happy to take questions if there are questions. Yes, sir. Uh, first of all, I thought your lecture was phenomenal, and I absolutely agree that... Um, That's that great. We'll stop there. Um, <laughs> yeah. um, but I also want to push back a little bit and ask what the difference is, if anything, between um, gratitude and complacency. Uh, in other words, uh, does uh, a society based on gratitude leave no room for, um, I guess the word, I guess the word ambition is not exactly what I'm trying to say, because that's a negative connotation, but um, like goal setting, a desire to improve. Um, are, are the two compatible, do you think, and how so? They are compatible, indeed. Um, one implies the other. And it's for this reason. If you think of uh, uh, how Burke, assume you've read Burke. I'm familiar with him. Good, all right. You all should read Burke, all right. Um, uh, he argues that, that no conservatism, and if, and if you all have, have detected that, 
that part of what I'm trying to do is is articulate or rearticulate a kind of older form of conservatism. Right, you're in on the secret. Um, Burke said any conservatism worthy of the name must have within its own resources the capacity to change. Now, that means that conservatism is not stasis. It's not a kind of ossified, holding the past in reverence without change. Conservatism always has the capacity to look at the inheritance, to look at the gift, and to seek in a loving fashion to improve it. To improve it and then pass it on to the next generation. <clears throat> it's the attitude that Burke found so offensive was the idea that, yes, what we've inherited is problems. Every human inheritance has problems. And he said the Jacobins have got the, their attitude exactly wrong. They, that, 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 that the wounds of a father should characterize how we think of, of, of that which we've inherited. Treat the, in, the, the, the imperfections of the state, he said, as you would the wounds of a father. Tenderly care for and try to improve. Rather, the Jacobins, he said, are, are, are loath to even, they, they, they want a perfection. We're not talking about a politics of perfection. We're talking about politics of, of, of care. And he said the Jacobins, they look at the wounds of a father, the wounds of the state, and say, that's imperfect. Let's hack that thing up. Let's hack the old body up, throw the body parts into a kettle, stir in some, some, some weeds and incantations, and hope that something better comes out. It's a destruction of that which is inherited which is ultimately ungrateful, isn't it? It's rooted in a kind of hubris. I can do better than what my fathers have done, and it's an attempt to destroy and then optimistically raise something up. Conservatism, and the, and the way that Burke is thinking, and I think it's, it's rooted fundamentally in terms of this idea of gratitude, fundamentally is oriented toward improvement. Fundamentally, but it's a kind of improvement that takes what has been given and tries to improve it so that we can pass it on. Think of inheriting something from, from your grandfather, your great-grandfather, right? a piece of land. <clears throat> and, and he's cared for, tended for, and all his land. What can you do? Well, you can say, well, granddad gave it to this, this to me, and I'm just going to sit there and let it do whatever it does, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give it to my, my son, my grandson. Well, it's going to it's gonna change. What would you do? If you're going to live and treat that piece of land in the spirit in which your grandfather lived on it and treated it, you're going to seek to improve it, seek to cultivate it, seek to, to bring out its latent riches, even in the process of caring for it with a kind of continuity in the past. There's a continuity and change. Eliot spoke of this in a little essay called Tradition and the Individual Talent. You all read T.S. Eliot, yes? All right? Important thinker you need to read. And he thought of this in the context of poetry. You can't be an innovative poet, he thought, without having one foot firmly set you need to know the past in order to take the past and then, and then move it forward in an innovative fashion. It's a both and. It's not a So I would say that, that rather than seeing attention, these, the, the idea of gratitude, the politics of gratitude, implies a kind of loving care, a stewardship that's going to seek to bring out all the potentialities that may not even have been realized yet. They go together. that work? around the head. Thank you. <laughs> yes. Sir. I think in response to that, Russell Kirk wrote, wrote an essay called Ten Conservative Principles, I think, that he drew from Burke that, that really covered that pretty well. It was, yeah. explains those two tensions. Yes. More questions? 
So, Dr. Richard. Yes, Father Kirk. <laughs> what do these you know, future members of the General Assembly of Pennsylvania do <laughs> about fracking? Let me, let me bring this down to the muddy reality of politics yeah. of the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania. What, what, what is the politics of gratitude? How, how might a legislator who's thinking about the politics of gratitude, maybe even a legislator coming from an economically depressed northern county in Appalachia, how, how would you approach that issue? Yeah. Well, I, I uh, have to admit, I don't know enough about the technology of fracking to uh, say much about fracking, except it's kind of a fun word to say once you start saying it. But in terms of, of, yeah. of extraction of resources, we can think of mountaintop removal in eastern Kentucky, um, for, for an example. Um, there, there, there is um, always going to be, as human beings, I mean, for energy. We are consumers. Not, not, not in a bad way. Anything that lives is going to consume. And so I, I think we need to resist any sort of notion that, well, the problem is human beings, fundamentally or essentially. And this is what some, some folks uh, in, in certain aspects of the environmentalist movement, that see, if you even consider um, many uh, environmentalist art or painting, what do you notice for its absence? Human beings. Human beings are conspicuously absent. You have idyllic uh, images of the natural world being natural. <clears throat> Whereas it seems to me uh, it's equally, and perhaps even in a different way, but beautiful uh, in its own right, say a well-cared for piece of land. Human beings can and indeed should be caretakers. And indeed, I think conservatives, think of the word, should be the best conservationists. And if we fail at that, and, and what we've done is we've seeded, that is, conservatives have tend to see, well, the environment, think of the, the word environment's a problem. It implies something outside of us, right? Something other than us, and that we're not part of it, and we can take care of the environment, or not. The environment is, it's, that's the purview of the left, and we don't want to be associated with those, those tree huggers, and so, well, they can do, and, and, it's, and it's, it's created a, a, a problem. Conservatives need to recapture the language of conservation in all of its facets. Maybe even dispense with the language of environment itself. Wendell Berry says a better term is creation. Suddenly, the environment's not out there. Suddenly, creation, we're part of it. We inhabit a creation. We are part of a creation. And as, as, as beings uh, given responsibility to steward well this creation, we have obligations. Now, there's always going to be uh, difficult decisions at the policy level. There's always going to be um, uh, uh, challenges about, well, and, and, and this requires, I don't, I don't want to say anything specific about fracking simply because I don't know enough about it. And, and one of the, the, the problems, I think, is, is looking for blanket solutions to all problems. We, you need to look at particular issues and come up with particular solutions that, 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 that work in a particular context. And, uh, and, and that means it requires a whole lot of study ahead of time, a whole lot of sensitivity to to the particular needs of a place and the people of that place. But I can tell you this, the debate shouldn't be held 
without the recognition that the people who inhabit the place have an important stake. Uh, again, I'm, I'm thinking in terms of, of, of Barry's work, but he gives an example of, of a nuclear uh, uh, facility that was being proposed. It was, it was somewhere in Kentucky, I believe, or Ohio. And there was some, some concern among local people, you know, the, neighbor, the neighborhood, they'd, well, we don't want that in our backyard, all right? They're just classic NIMBYs, right? Not my backyard. Well, so the, 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 uh, the uh, concern, the corporation that was going to do this uh, held a town hall meeting. Group of the executives were on stage to answer questions. Ten or twelve of these people came, and one woman stood up and asked one simple question of these people on the stage: How many of you live within a 50-mile radius of this proposed project? How many hands went up? Do you think? Hmm. That is, that we at least should, in this deliberation, take into account the concerns, the fears, and desires of those people who are present. And we have a problem with scale when, when an outside organization can, in fact, dictate without recourse, really, the, the, uh, the, what goes on in a local community. There should at least be a substantial voice. doesn't answer the question, but at least suggests, I think, an avenue by which some of these things it cannot be handed down from on high without consideration for local concerns, for the community that's going to be affected. What else? Yes. Good question. Um, it's a good question, actually. Um, it seems to me that the ubiquitous nature of the language of rights is a problem. Because when we think and act and constitute our public discourse primarily in the language of rights, we're claiming what? This is mine. Mine. Give me mine. Think of how different the, the our public discourse would, would would sound if we spoke primarily in the idiom of duty. What's my duty as a citizen? It's not to say that the language of rights has to be eliminated, but I think there's an imbalance. And and a recapturing of the language of well, how do you even start to capture the language of duty? Because duty sounds hard, right? Rights are mine. I just have to claim them because they're mine, and I can demand them, and I feel good about demanding something, and then having those demands acceded to. But no one demands a duty. Even in the language of duty, is a, is, is 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 implied kind of responsibility, a sober reflection on what needs to be done, and my responsibility. sure that you can have an adequate conception of citizenship grounded solely or primarily in the language of rights. And again, think back to, I, I refer to the idea of pietas. 
think of of the classical Roman Republican virtue, virtues in service of something larger themselves. Fidelity to the state, to 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 that which serves in many respects to constitute, to create this, the context within which we live. I would say a good start to answer your question. It's not an, it's not a full-blown answer, but it's it's replacing or at least uh, uh, making sub, uh, subservient to the language of rights underneath the umbrella of duty. So, try to do that. Follow. How is it that the military does such a good job of cultivating this yeah. idea of duty, whereas the rest of the culture? Yeah. Um, maybe two things um, that, that, that come immediately to mind. Uh, first of all, the military, at least historically, has uh, has a, a coherent end, a telos, a mission, and that sort of gets gets fuzzy in more recent adventures. But I think historically that's been the case. So, but we've lost, in terms of our society at large, a telos, a concern or an interest in, or even the ability to speak of a common good. Second, <clears throat> the military is the last venue in our society where hierarchy is not an embarrassing word. That is, in an age of radical egalitarianism, I'm not sure that you can really speak in terms of duty in a robust fashion, because duty implies that something bears down on me, something is over me, something is required of me because of my position, because of who I am. And in a radically egalitarian society, the quintessential question is one of authority. That is, when someone tells us what to do or what we ought to do, our first impulse is to say, who says? You don't do that in the military. You click your heels, you salute, say, yes, sir, we'll take the hill. And so a recovery of some notion of authority, not a kind of authoritarianism, I'm not talking that, but hierarchy, it sounds like a scary word, dirty Eliot, in his book, Notes Concerning a Definition of Culture, said you cannot have a coherent culture without We need to explore that. Is it possible to even recover such a thing in a democratic region? That's a good question. Thanks for joining us tonight, and let's thank Dr. Mitchell. This podcast is brought to you by Villanova University on iTunes U. Please visit us on itunes.villanova.edu.